Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab here at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Simone Zagre-Barker, a PhD student studying experimental physics. And I'm Jacob Butler from the Outreach Office. We're joined today by Professor Sarah Bondick, Professor of Biomedical Sciences at the Cambridge Laboratory, Group Leader at Cancer Research UK Cambridge Institute and Fellow of Corpus Christi College. Born in Greenwich, Sarah found an early enthusiasm for science and went on to study natural sciences as an undergraduate at Cambridge University. Drawn to interdisciplinary research, she completed a PhD in radiation physics at UCL's Department of Medical Physics, looking at X-ray imaging techniques for cancer detection and working alongside biologists and chemists. Following this, Sarah moved towards optics in order to become involved in clinical trials and took up a postdoctoral position in Cambridge and then at Stanford. Currently, her research group, the Vision Lab, looks to understand tumours using new medical imaging techniques, and Sarah is also particularly interested in the incredibly important process of standardising complex methods and datasets between laboratories. Alongside her research, she has championed public engagement and interdisciplinary research training and pushes for open access practical solutions to serious medical issues. Stay with us. So welcome. Um, We'd like to start off our episodes by delving into kind of what got our guests interested in science and physics in the first place. And as I understand it, you were initially drawn to astronomy as a teenager um, because you lived near Greenwich and worked at the observatory there on the weekends. Could you tell our listeners a bit about that and perhaps what it was about the concepts of time and the universe that kind of fascinated you? Well, growing up in Greenwich, I think everyone is in some sense uh, struck by the meridian line. You cross it on a daily basis and going into the uh, observatory, I really used to enjoy going to their planetarium shows and they used to have also sometimes have stargazing evenings that you could go along to and look through their, their telescopes. And I really was drawn to the history there, uh, the history of the Astronomer Royals, the history of the definition of time, the concept of using like a, a meridian line to have a standard mm. reference point, the solution to uh, thinking about keeping time at sea, the Harrison clocks that are in the, the galleries there. And it was a real pleasure to actually then be able to get a Saturday job and, uh, and be able to work there um, also later as a summer job as well. And I think being exposed to that and having this kind of awareness of the history of, uh, of science in, in that space, I also did work experience uh, at, the, at the, um, the galleries there. I really felt like I was fascinated by um, the astrophysics, the, the study of the stars, and that was sort of fostered by a physics teacher of mine who also helped us to study astronomy GCSE when we were at school. And so bringing all those things together, that kind of drew me towards physics as a path towards studying astrophysics in the future. Lovely. I think time's a fascinating thing, isn't it? It's one of those sort of constants that just sits in the background. You don't really think about it, but once you scratch the surface, there's all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful problems. So you started your undergraduate degree in natural sciences here at Cambridge and quickly realised that you're interested in uh, biomedicine. What was it about this that attracted you to it? I suppose one of the benefits of natural sciences is that you get to study multiple different sciences. And I I picked up uh, evolution and behaviour as a course, and I picked up material science as a course. I have to admit, I didn't really like material science very much as a course. Um, I didn't have a background in chemistry and I, I really struggled with it as a, as a discipline. 
but uh, in the uh, undergraduate course in the first year, there are a, a series of lectures related to biomaterials and biological applications of materials. I was really fascinated by the concept that you could use your physical sciences knowledge to actually help people. The fact that they had designed a material that could be biocompatible and implanted into people to replace their hips. That's <laughs> you know, fascinating to me as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And it set me on a path to thinking about how I could use physics uh, in a medical application, ultimately, hopefully, to one day help people. I think it's fascinating. Isn't it? I mean, hip replacements in particular, you know, everyone's grand's got one. They seem very sort of mundane almost, don't they? But the complexity involved in actually designing something that can sit inside the human body and doesn't produce any sort of, uh, you know, horrible side effects is, yeah, it's really something staggering. And it was really interesting how it was still such an active area of research. It wasn't just that we, you know, oh, we've solved this now. So like, oh, we actually want to make the implants last longer. We want to have fewer side effects, better uh, uptake. And um, how can we get to a point if, that we don't have to replace them? Uh, so it was really interesting to see it's not just a problem that's solved, it's a problem that continues to generate research ideas. And I think in contrast to some problems in physics, it's very closely tied to practical solutions, isn't it? And, yeah, in ways that perhaps astronomy and, and particle physics seems a little bit more distant from. And I guess also um, working with things that have real-world applications gives you a sense of seeing how it's not just the science itself, but how that's then translated into people, you know, using it, as you were just saying, the uptake, but also how that might be commercialized and the kind of obstacles that may be there um, for that to happen. Was that something that was also something that fascinated you about that? Or like not just the, the research side, but also the kind of, not necessarily the commercialization, but kind of getting things from the lab to the real world? Well, I have to say I have very little understanding of, of the process that that, that entailed until much later <laughs> in my career and uh, only even now sometimes struggle to understand the pathway <laughs> to get a particular device from, from lab to, to commercialization to clinical application. It's a long and arduous path that requires a lot of different steps along the way. Also, there's a, a tendency, I think, among those of us in the uh, the research sciences to to think about our own interests and mm. develop technologies that spark our curiosity, but don't necessarily then match up with the clinician need. So mm. there is a, a, a tendency to sometimes send something out towards a clinical application that then just doesn't quite find its home. Right. Um, and so we tend to work very closely in my team with uh, clinical collaborators and rather than sort of pushing a technology towards them, actually pulling them towards us and asking them, well, what do you need? What's missing in your um, studies where you're trying to detect cancer earlier? I mean, that's the, the focus of what, a lot of what we do is trying to find cancer at an earlier stage than we can currently detect it with our readily available technologies. But unless we ask those questions to our clinical collaborators, the people who are working on a daily basis to try and find it in patients, mm -hmm. we never really quite understand where the missing gaps are and where could our technology really make a, the most difference. So how did you end up actually, you know, working in the field itself? So, you know, you heard this fascinating lecture about hip implants. You thought, okay, this is amazing. Um, what kind of led you to then actually finding your role there? Yeah, I, I had a really uh, lucky uh, path in a sense because I decided that this is something I really wanted to do. Um, I lived in London at the time, was living in term time in Cambridge. So I thought, okay, well, maybe in the summer holidays I could try to get a research placement. Um, I needed to be paid, so I had to go and find some money to do that as well. Um, but I just reached out to people that I could find online who were working in medical-related areas of physics. And the first person that re responded to me was Professor Robert Speller, who then became later my PhD supervisor. 
and said, sure, you know, there's this scheme from the Nuffield uh, research scheme that you can apply to, to get funding for summer placements. I'm happy to support you for this and you'd be welcome to come and do a stay in my lab. And fortunately we were successful, we got funded. I went and did a research placement with him and at the end of it, he then offered me the chance to come back and do a PhD. And by that stage, I was absolutely hooked on like putting bits of kit together in the lab. It was <laughs> super fun. I got given an x-ray source and some detectants and he was like, okay, build a CT system. I'm like, wow, it was like <laughs> the best summer project ever. Um, so I got to work with some of the postdocs there and um, really build up connections, build up skills in programming so that I could control all of the equipment. Um, and by the end of it, I was really, really pleased that I got to continue on and work with the group for longer. And could you tell us a bit about what that x-ray topography kind of technique works like? So the, the technology that I worked on then was um, x-ray diffraction computer tomography. The concept there was to say, okay, in, in regular medical imaging, when we look at CT, we're looking at the x-rays that have not interacted with the patient. Okay, so we, we, we shine an x-rays at a patient, we detect what passes through. Right. So we exclude all of <laughs> we don't record any information from the x-rays that have actually interacted in the patient. Mm -hmm. So we can get a an image that shows us uh, where the light has been more attenuated and where it has propagated through. And that's great. It gives us some structural contrast in patients, but it's not so good in soft tissues. So it's not so good at finding contrast. And in mammography, where it's applied in to look for breast cancer, what we thought about was, well, instead of just looking at the x-rays that pass straight through, perhaps we could look at the x-rays that are scattered. So these x-rays will then interact with molecules in the breast and then they will either have their direction changed or their energy changed. And perhaps we could then measure that and use that interaction as a way to, to detect disease earlier. Now, one of the challenges there was that the detectors that you typically use to do those measurements are extremely bulky, they're complex, they're very expensive, and they're not the sort of thing that you would want to routinely put in a hospital where they're going to get knocked about um, and you, it's just not practical. Um, so I worked on a large UK consortium as part of my PhD who were looking at the potential applications of a new imaging type of detector, which at the time, which was called a, a CMOS active pixel sensor. And these are the cameras that are now everyday ubiquitous in our smartphones. They're miniaturized. Mm -hmm. You find them everywhere. They're in your laptops. Probably each of us have three or four of them on our person at any one time. Um, if you're sitting in a car, you probably have 15 or 20 of them around <laughs> you at any one time because they're often uh, they're embedded as rear view, front view, surround view, back view, etc. Um, so they're now ubiquitous in everyday life, but they'd only recently been um, invented in the 1990s. So when I was doing my PhD uh, in, starting in 2005, it was the first exploration of actually now these things are starting to scale and gain traction. Could they be used for science? And typically they were not very good in terms of performance. They were designed for uh, scaling volume manufacturing they were typically quite noisy and non-linear they didn't have the sort of parameters that you would normally expect from a scientific camera but this consortium in the UK was like okay well look let's try to optimize their design for science and we worked with a Rutherford Appleton laboratory where they had a design team for the cameras and many different universities across the UK so in this consortium, which was called MI3, we tried out these cameras for X-ray mammography. We tried them out for X-ray diffraction imaging and for lots of different um, uh, applications. So in my PhD, I spend a lot of time in a dark room doing very basic uniform illumination of cameras to do characterization, try to standardize the methods that we used to evaluate them and then applied them with a, a piece of material called a scintillator, which converts X-rays into visible light, which is actually detectable by those cameras. Very cool stuff. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating to hear how sort of quickly things can go from being cutting edge scientific uh, you know, materials to you know, in, in the smartphones of teenagers, which is uh, yeah, it's astonishing. Now, you, you mentioned the uh, consortium. Now, medical physics is something that sits at the interface of many fields, you know, whether it's optics and imaging, clinical medicine, biotechnology. Uh, how have you found that interdisciplinary aspect of your work? I think that's probably the aspect of my work that I love the most. I love having that breadth of interaction across lots of different disciplines. There's obviously challenges that come with it. Every discipline has its own language, its own priorities and expectations. Uh, but within that, you get to learn more about uh, how different um, people work, how different academic institutions work, um, how people think differently with different perspectives. And for me, the kind of the acceleration of research that you can have by bringing together people from lots of different backgrounds with lots of different training and uh, ideas, uh, it really helps to, to solve some of these more challenging problems at the interfaces between different sciences. Indeed, I've run readings for interesting research about how if you're surrounded by people who are all doing very similar things to you or you know, look similar to you, you tend to assume they think the same way. Whereas if you've got different sorts of people, whether that's you know, discipline-wise or what have you, you tend to be more. You, know, you tend to assume they're going to have different opinions, so you're more more sort of clear in your explanations of what you're doing, and you question yourself more. And I think it's uh, it's really interesting to see that coming out. Now, uh, here in Cambridge, you're based in the Physics of Medicine building, which is always quite an interesting one for our visitors because they don't associate physics with medicine. Um, yeah, this is a hub of translational medical research, very important. So uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about what sort of things go on there and what sort of uh, you know, what the wider uh, sort of physical medicine buildings used for? Yeah, so in, in physics of medicine, we have a range of different uh, laboratories focused on developing new optical devices. And that's uh, enabled them by a broader infrastructure of biochemistry, chemistry and biological research labs that we can use to cultivate, um, for example, um, tissues from, from humans, from um, other animals. We can also use them to prepare what, what we call phantoms, so tissue mimicking objects. <laughs> and these are effectively just like jelly, but uh, mm. not, not red colored as you would often find <laughs> jelly, uh, colored to look like humans. So we add uh, pigmented dyes that look like our skin. We add uh, different types of fat molecules. Um, so we end up with objects that look like someone's poured a bit of coffee in a bit of milk, because um, <laughs> effectively from for the purposes of light interacting with our bodies, that's how we look. <laughs> we, we look like a, a, a diluted uh, milk with some, <laughs> some coffee added. Um, and the, those test objects we then use to characterize our devices. So by having this kind of chemical infrastructure that allows us to, to make these objects and the biological infrastructure that allows us to culture cells and tissues, we're then able to do those very, very early stage validation tests on new devices that we build. In our instrumentation labs, um, they, I guess they look kind of cold and oppressive in some way. They're large <laughs> optical tables with silvered tops. And on top of those, we have uh, different lasers and, and light sources that we can use to illuminate our objects. Um, and then lots of these um, different cameras that you find in smartphones, some of which have very similar properties to smartphone cameras, some of which are as small as a grain of rice, some of which are as large as a fridge. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of depends what it is you want to do with them and what the properties are that you need from them. Um, and that's the sort of thing that you find in our lab uh, on a daily basis. So people shining lots of different colors of light at these early times types of objects to quantify how the light interacts, make really precise measurements of the light propagating down in the, tish in the tissue or the, um, the phantom material, and then characterizing how the detector responds and trying to connect the signal in the detector with the signal in either the test object or the tissue. 
And that's what we do in the physics and medicine building. And then I also have a joint appointment at the CIUK Cambridge Institute. That's where we start to sort of make the translational path towards the clinic, because we also have a lab in Adam Brooks Hospital in the clinical research center there. Once we've done those initial tests in the tissues and the, the phantoms, we'll then take our technologies and sometimes test them in animal models of disease, but most frequently actually go through to test them either in human tissue that's been directly taken out of patients during surgery or in directly in humans themselves. And recently we've done some trials of new endoscopy approaches where we can introduce different cameras into the body to try to detect early signs of cancer in very limited early stage patient trials. That's fascinating. And you mentioned in our earlier chat that you have a very sort of holistic approach to this, including working with philosophers, I think was one example you used. And yeah, the, the idea that you're looking not just at these sort of technologies involved, but also the, the human factor, the, uh, what, what's actually going on for these patients that the uh, technology is interacting with. It's really important to do that. I think I mentioned earlier about the idea of this sort of technology push versus clinician pull. So that's one axis of the, the broader co complexities you have to think about when you're working in medical devices. But then there are also challenging legal and ethical ramifications when you're making medical measurements, the robustness and the reproducibility with which you can measure information that can then inform clinical decision making and it will change the course of how a patient is treated. Then when you start to go towards early detection, you're thinking about potentially detecting disease in someone who's otherwise well, mm. um, particularly in screening programs where people are enrolled purely on the basis of age. So mm. you're getting a bit older, come and have a colonoscopy. <laughs> Well, you know, that, that's fine, but that person believes they are well. Mm. You bring them in and you find an early sign of cancer. That's a very big impact on that person's life, not just in the sense that they're going to have to undergo some sort of treatment and perhaps that treatment may be disruptive to their lives. But psychologically and societally, that, that generates a level of anxiety and different people respond very differently to, to receiving that sort of diagnosis. Um, so we also have to think about the impact that we have on the individual. Obviously, it's easy to say, oh, well, early cancer detection saves lives. But obviously, there are nuanced challenges to this <laughs> that are not just about, can my detector improve contrast so that the clinician can detect an early cancer? So well, what do we do about that? Do we have appropriate interventions to then treat that patient? Are the interventions actually going to do harm mm -hmm. before they do good? What does that person really think about early detection? I mean, a lot of people would rather not know if they have a, a early signs of disease. So there, there are other things that you have to think about beyond just uh, the physics of your medical device. Mm -hmm. You also have to think in optics a lot about equitable delivery of your device. Mm. It's not just about the measurement that you make. It's like, does that me the measurement have some bias? We know, for example, that you know, ubiquitous optical devices like pulse oximeters, they contain some intrinsic racial bias because of the absorption of light by pigmentation in the skin. And this has become much more prominent in recent years because decision-making in the COVID pandemic has, in terms of admissions to intensive care units, for example, has been driven by measurements of pulse oximetry oxygenation. And we know that those oximeters can make overestimates if you have pigmented skin. Mm. So actually there's a healthcare inequity question when you're working with optics that you have to address as well. Less so in when we're working in endoscopy, but when we're actually sending light through the skin in order to make our measurements, we have to think about these as well. That's fascinating stuff. I think historically, wasn't it, everyone was assumed to be a white male. And if you didn't happen to be one, then you just had to deal with the error bars, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the fascinating history. I mean, I still have an interest in the history of science. Or, and if you look at the history of some of the medical devices that have been developed, uh, things like how do we reconstruct an image using ultrasound? Well, actually, the kind of the soft tissue average <laughs> speed of sound that I use in a lot of ultrasound devices 
was defined on a very restricted number of individuals a very long time ago, mm-hmm. but it's still ubiquitously used today. And there's a lot of discussion actually in the broader community, um, not just in optics or in ultrasound, but in other things. You know, do we need to look back and maybe redefine and rethink some of the things that have been taken for granted for quite a long time? We now take a break from the interview to talk about the research news coming out of the Cavendish. This month, we focus on biophysics, and in particular on a new technique for sequencing RNA. RNA, or ribonucleic acid, is one of the key biological molecules that bridges our genetic information, the DNA, and molecular factories, proteins. RNA has a single strand in comparison to double-stranded DNA helix, and is omnipresent. It is found in our own cells, in the genetic material viruses such as COVID, and is the basic component of RNA drugs and mRNA vaccines. Detailed information about RNA composition and structure is needed for cancer and disease variant diagnostics, gene expression quantification, and RNA makeup identification. For instance, RNA modification can impact mRNA vaccine stability or the structures themselves can act as targets for antiviral drugs. However, RNA sequencing is a labor-intensive process and suffers from enzyme biases, meaning that the enzymes that bind to the RNA to read it can lead to loss of information, including RNA identity and quantity. Furthermore, up until now, we could not detect RNA makeup, including its chemical modifications and overall shape. The mere order of bases in a strand of RNA could not tell us how it looked. Now, PhD student Philip Boscovich and Professor Ulrich F. Kaiser, researchers at the Cavendish, have developed a new method that has made possible the identification of multiple RNAs in parallel. The method is called amplification-free RNA target multiplex isoform sensors. The method is called amplification-free RNA target multiplex isoform sensing, or ARTEMIS in short. They employ their method to analyze native RNA molecules, including ribosomal RNA molecules that can be used as species-specific markers. In their paper published in Nature Chemistry, they describe how the approach can discriminate between different structural variants of RNA known as RNA isoforms, which are relevant to many biomedical applications. Through Artemis, they have identified multiple RNA isoforms of the enolase gene in human RNA deriving from cervical adenocarcinoma, as well as isoforms of non-coding RNAs, crucial for gene expression regulation. The target RNA is translated into RNA origami codes with design sets of complementary DNA strands. As with Lego bricks, the researchers combine fitting units to create a linear RNA-DNA duplex that can bear code. Each code has multiple sites. Here, instead of only having 1 and 0 bits, they introduce up to 10 bits, thus enabling production of 10 billion RNA codes with 10 sites. RNA codes are then read with a nanopore microscope, which translates RNA codes into a current signal with super resolution. Artemis has the potential to create tens of billions of unique RNA IDs that are readable using nanopore microscopy or imaging methods. 
This opens new avenues for single molecule mapping of RNA motives important to drug development. In addition, the study also demonstrates that highly abundant natural RNAs may serve as scaffolds for nanoscale self-assembly techniques known as TNA origami with a wider length range and yield. This can help in detecting vaccine bioproducts with potential side effects in preclinical trials. Filip Boskovic, the first author of the study, commented that we live in the RNA era where diseases, pathogens, therapeutics, and even vaccines are based on RNA molecules. We showed characterization of RNA with simple short DNA binding to it. By creating this hybrid duplex from RNA and DNA, we bypass problems with degradation and enable understanding of RNA in its native form. If you want to know more about this study, check out the links in the show notes. Welcome back to our interview with Sarah Von Dijk, Professor of Biomedical Physics here at the Cavendish Laboratory. So during your postdoc, you shifted from imaging to NMR and later to nuclear medicine. Could you elaborate a bit on what shifting between those different areas was like? And also, it's quite interesting that during your career, your research moves between different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, <laughs> X-rays to radio frequencies and back to nuclear radiation. And it just goes to show, you know, how much science is based on understanding and exploiting how light interacts with matter in all its different flavors. Um, so yeah, could you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, I, and it's certainly not lost on me that I've just jumped around the electromagnetic spectrum quite a lot in, in my There's career. A lot to do. <laughs> um, when I was coming to the end of uh, my PhD and starting to think about what I might do next, one of the things that I felt that I was missing was really a, a deep understanding of, of the biology that I was imaging. Why was it that um, tumors in the breast showed different signals from in x-ray diffraction like the the chemistry that i was measuring using our x-ray diffraction signatures was effectively changes in the ratio of water to lipid why would cancer have that effect why why would changes in proliferation of cells generate this this shift and i started to dig into that and i i during my thesis was then understanding that particular concept but I thought I would really like to broaden out. And so I, I went around looking at different labs where they had an, an imaging theme, but with more of a, a bio, biological um, drive. And that took me to work with uh, Professor Kevin Brindle here in the Department of Biochemistry, who was then uh, pioneering research in, um, um, as you've said, in NMR, looking at dynamic nuclear polarization, which was a brand new technique through which you could massively increase the signal that you could measure in NMR from different molecules while they were being metabolized. So you could actually see dynamic biological processes happening in real time in living systems, which was something that for me was incredibly inspiring. And I thought it would be really interesting to be able to learn something more about the biology of the disease, but then also bring kind of my own physics and engineering perspective. So I spent a lot of time, again, in a basement, kind of where I feel like <laughs> I'm in a dark room in a basement um, with the the NMR spectrometer and the um, the dynamic nuclear polarization setup and kind of my physics and engineering was really then helpful for fixing when it toppled over and uh, updating the uh, the computer systems 
And in return, you know, I had my first experience in holding a pipette and doing biological enzyme assays, culturing cells in dishes. It's like all these crazy phenomena that now <laughs> nowadays I take as everyday routine. Like we just mm -hmm. do this all the time in the lab. But at the time it was, blew my mind that you could take cells out of a person and grow them in a dish. Um, and that was really fascinating to me. I learned a huge amount about biological research. I, I learned that the error bars are gigantic compared to what we would expect to see in the physical sciences. And that's okay, um, that you can design <laughs> your experiments appropriately to have the statistical power that you need. Um, I learned a lot about interacting with people from different backgrounds. I was in a lab where there were biochemists, but there were chemists, there were biologists, there were clinicians. Uh, the people I was interacting with on a daily basis were no longer physicists. And it was really interesting to me to be able to talk to all these different people. And during that postdoc, I learned a huge amount and I felt like I really wanted to build on that experience. But I also still had the desire to learn a bit more about the clinical orientation of, of research. And that's what drew me to work in then Professor Sam Gambier's lab at, at Stanford, who was really a, an inspirational person on my uh, career journey, having also come from more of an interdisciplinary background training in mathematics and then in medicine, sort of bringing together sort of physical sciences and, and clinical sciences in his own career. Um, and in that opportunity then moving to, to his lab, I started to kind of continue to use my optics and build up new optical systems, but think more about how they might be applied in patients. So working with a team there who were doing kind of clinical translation of new optical devices, of new radio tracers in nuclear medicine, a whole range of different applications. And really getting that first sense of what it would be like to do research at the cutting edge of, uh, of clinical trials and, and being right next door to the medical school as well. That's fascinating stuff. So for the last decade, you've been leading the Vision Lab here at the Biological and Soft Systems Group at the Cavendish. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what your research entails at the moment? My team are focused on developing new imaging and spectroscopy techniques that can help us to pick up the earliest signs of cancer and also understand how it evolves in those early stages. We're particularly interested in how the tumour forms its blood vessel network in the, like, in the simplest way possible when light falls on matter, that the simplest interaction it can have is it can just be absorbed. And in our bodies, the, one of the most absorbing molecules in the visible and near infrared light range is, is haemoglobin in our red blood cells. And that molecule um, absorbs light differently depending on whether oxygen is bound to it. So that means that you can not only measure how much blood is present, where it's present, but also how well oxygenated it is. And those parameters are all very important in the early stages of disease, because as a tumour is growing, it has a metabolic demand that needs to be fulfilled. So it needs energy. It has to get its energy from somewhere. It needs access to oxygen. Um, and so it stimulates new blood vessels to grow in in order to, to develop that, that blood supply and gain access to that, those oxygen and nutrients. By developing then imaging and spectroscopy methods that will allow us to make measurements, uh, images of the vascular networks and also measurements of the haemoglobin content, we're then able to start to see how the disease is progressing and use that as a way to enhance contrast um, in endoscopy, for example, when you're introducing a camera into the body or using different hybrid techniques where you combine light and cell together and, and get much deeper resolution uh, of the imaging. Excellent. Now you've uh, talked a little bit about uh, the importance of working closely with uh, with sort of practitioners and clinicians. And uh, in our earlier conversation, you mentioned that you don't focus just on developing new devices, but improving existing ones in order to not have to retrain people. Did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Part of the, the challenge of um, creating new medical devices is actually thinking about where they will fit in the clinic and how they can be broadly adopted. 
so yes, if you think about the kind of the global population of clinicians, they've all been trained, let's take endoscopy as the example, they've all been trained to look down a lumen in a similar way to review the landscape and decide if there are signs of abnormality present. If you come at them with a brand new technology that shows the data in a completely different way, let's say in a cross-sectional mode or something else, it'll be there'll be a big gap in knowledge between their experience and interpretation of existing approaches versus what you're trying to get them to adopt. Because of that um, disparity, sometimes it can be easier in the context of the sort of clinician pool to actually work backwards from the device that's already present in the clinic and think about what can I do with the technology that's already there, making improvements based on the knowledge and understanding I have of the underlying physics, as well as the background biology. And sometimes it's as simple as just changing the filters. Just change the filter <laughs> set so we look at different colors of light. Mm -hmm. um, we did a study a couple of years ago where um, we used the standard white light approach and then we changed the, the colors that we were looking, not the red, green, and blue that our eyes see, but actually using a slightly different shifted filter set. You can get a tenfold higher contrast. So sometimes it's the simplest things that can make the biggest difference if you think about it from a patient perspective. Mm. And it sounds like you have to work with humongous data sets. Um, in, in terms of like the spectroscopy that you do and also all these different types of imaging. Um, would you say that that's one of the challenges of working with this type of um, approach of having these large data sets that perhaps even different labs might be recording in different ways and from so many different types of devices? Because uh, you mentioned standardization as well earlier. Exactly. Um, one of the things we often struggle with in, in our field is that we have a very large number of technical replicates so we can make the same measurement a lot of times. Mm -hmm but we have relatively few biological replicates, i.e. human beings that we can make that measurement in. So we might have a, a clinical trial, but we'll probably only recruit 20 participants to a pilot study. In each one, we might take lots and lots of data sets, and those data sets are typically you know, two or three dimensions of, image, of spatial data. Then we have a, another dimension of time, and then we have another dimension of wavelength in our spectroscopy data sets. So we're looking at the, the um, dispersion of the color across the whole wavelength range. So our individual data sets are quite large and complex, and we can take many of them from one person, but we have a, a, sort of a, a challenge of then mm. gathering the data across lots of people. One way that to expand the number of people that we are using in our trials would be to combine data from different labs. For many different labs working on similar sorts of technologies, we could harmonize together. We'd be able to increase our, our biological replicates, our statistical power, um, to make a more compelling case for uh, intervention or, or clinical application. But then comes the challenge of standardization. We're all making our measurements in different ways, with different protocols, um, often calibrating our devices in different ways. Um, and, and that's then become something that is of really much of interest to me, is to try to make the most out of all of these experiments that are going on in the world. Let's not duplicate effort. Let's try to harmonize together, standardize the data formats in which we are measuring our data, try to standardize the way that we calibrate our devices. Um, and as a result of that, I've been involved in some different initiatives to try to increase reproducibility of research in biophotonics. And I'm leading a, a consortium in a particular area of biophotonics, which is known as photoacoustics, where we combine light and sound in order to try to accelerate clinical translation by providing these kind of phantom test objects that will allow people to test their devices and compare data between them. Mm -hmm. And I guess open access of, of data and also of methods is also important to enabling that to some extent. Exactly. I think it's absolutely vital that we make the, the best use of every data set that we acquire. I mean, we've also uh, thought a lot about how we 
share data between different labs, um, how you best annotate it. And so for every time you publish, you try to publish the associated data with that. There are now opportunities where you can just publish the data and annotate that as well as you can, just publish the software, annotate that as well as you can. So it's very important to try and get things out there and enable other people to use them. And that's not just from a kind of scientific perspective, it's also from, uh, you know, let's say, a, a sense of public duty. I mean, the people mm. who pay for this research are, by and large, the taxpayers, and they have a right to see what we're doing and make sure that we're not spending their money multiple times <laughs> to do the same thing. It's mm. just, <laughs> it makes perfect sense then to try to um, reduce that kind of duplication. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, your work has more of an impact if it's actually able to be used by somebody else to, to change something. Yeah, ultimately, there's no, point me, there's no point me sitting here for <laughs> just doing small study after small study. Ultimately, if we want to take the sorts of things we are developing and get, see them in a, in a patient, we have to embark on that pathway that you asked me about at the beginning. We have to mm -hmm. think about generating sufficient evidence that this is worth commercializing, it's worth putting into a patient setting and could make an impact on the patient pathway. So as a final question, now what are some of the exciting developments that you hope to see in medical imaging? <laughs> wow, that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> Just nice and vague. <laughs> I think there are lots of exciting developments in medical imaging and I think we can learn a lot from, I think, as I said before, kind of going back and, and taking a fresh look at some of the modalities that are out there uh, already. And there's some really exciting changes now happening in ultrasound, which has been a, a technology in the clinic for more than 50 years. It's a very standard technology. It gives, by and large, very useful images. Most people who've had a baby have had an ultrasound. I mean, it's very common technology. But there's so much more that we can do with it nowadays. In the research grade, there are opportunities to do extremely high resolution imaging very, very quickly look at changes in like neural function, for example, so we can measure it, measurements of brain function, um, build up you know, four-dimensional images of, of incredible resolution. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for like, taking a second look at mm. some of the modalities that we've mm. already worked with. That sort of also comes from my experience as a postdoc, look, taking a second look at MRI and, mm. and, and bringing new technologies in there. I also think there's a huge amount we can do to facilitate decentralization of healthcare. If we think about the trajectory of health in the next 10 or 20 years, it's, there's going to be a lot less about medicalizing everyone into secondary healthcare centers like hospitals and seeing what we can do in the community. How can we take healthcare to individuals rather than bringing individuals into healthcare? Mm. And we as physical scientists have a huge role to play in developing the sorts of imaging devices or biosensors that can be readily used not just by general practitioners, but also by people in their homes. How can we actually get people to engage with their health? We've got you know, revolutions that are happening um, in wearables and other technologies where people are interested in their, their fitness and their, their well-being. Let's take that one step further. Let's enable people to have an active engagement with health by giving them the sorts of tools and technologies that allow them to do it without perturbing their daily lives. Let's just go about our daily life and embed these sorts of technologies in how we operate. And I think without making that kind of change, we're going to end up in, in a big problem with healthcare and just like the cost of referrals into hospitals, the operation, if you think about the, the NHS at the moment, um, being it's really struggling to keep up with the number of procedures that are being done in hospitals. That, let's think about how we can change the technologies to not be centralised in remote places that are far from individuals. Mm -hmm. Take the technologies and the ideas that we're working with and empower people to engage with them at, at, in GPs and at home. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful chat. Um, yeah, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Yeah.
thank you very much to our guest, uh, Professor Sarah Bondik, for describing how we're all slightly watered-down milk <laughs> and for uh, explaining some of the complexities of, uh, of designing scientific implements for the real world as well. And to Dr. Paolo Molignini for the news and to our producer Chris for this episode. Uh, if you want to learn more about what's been discussed in this episode or want to join your study with us at the Cavendish, please go to phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We'd love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Please send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag #PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye.